0: Tonight's Rage is rated M for mature audiences and contains adult themes, coarse language, and nudity. Like a lot of people my age, I grew up on the VHS tape. I used to tape stuff on TV and watch it back before so-called on-demand services took over our lives. Because I couldn't just click on a YouTube link, I used to tape music video shows in my pre-teens so I can watch them back. I would watch those tapes until they were distorted and live in the world of these film clips over and over. I can tell you the entire running orders of some episodes of video hits from 1988 including when the ads were and the strange hit predictions that broke up the countdown. Massive chart hits from that era like If I Could by 1927, Especially For You by Kylie and Jason and Better Be Home Soon by Crowded House are burnt into my brain the videos along with the song. That whole alternative thing was yet to reach my house at this point you see. I'm pretty sure in 1988 at age 7 I didn't know anything about Sonic Youth. Sometimes all you even knew about an artist was from the film clip. I was too young to buy albums or have access to the album artwork where there might be a precious photo of the band so it was vital to learn that crowded house was just three guys and that they were kind of funny. Paul Hester holding up an upside down cue card still sums up that band for me. It made me love them despite being quite a sad song in retrospect and it's weird that a seven-year-old would like it at all. I never had a spouse stay out and not let me know where they are by 1988. I had one source of artist information and that source told me that Jason and Kylie were a genuine couple and sometimes had it hard juggling their acting commitments and being together like in the Especially For You film clip. Or that 1927's rehearsal space was the actual church in their film clip for If I Could. When the alternative explosion of the early 90s did happen, I learnt a lot about those bands through their film clips. The essential fashion tips, flannel and long hair for grunge, or adidas for Britpop, that was all learnt from film clips. And the resource-poor Australian independent music scene got into it too after a while. Clips went from being non-existent in the 80s to cheaply made performance showcases and finally expensive artistic statements. It also helped that there were more places for a film clip to be seen. An indie band in the mid-80s had no reason to make a film clip because who would ever see it? That changed in the 90s with the rise of music film clip shows. In Australia, on the indie side, there was one music video outlet that was more important than any other. One that I believe plays a part in what bands hope to achieve in their career. Because everyone wants different things when they play in bands. You might want to make money. You might want to have a lot of sex. You might have some artistic idea to express. You might want recognition for your technical abilities. But I would reckon every indie band in Australia on that list of achievements is they would like to host the Australian music film clip show Rage. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week we are looking at Rage and the music video. Hi, we're something for Kate. For the next couple of hours we will be very seriously earnestly and with a high degree of angst, be programming Rage. So uh, if, you, uh, if you just want to be brought down, depressed, uh, I don't know, just put your feet up and uh, listen to some songs, I guess. Rage was and still is a music film clip show shown on the government-funded Australian Broadcasting Corporation. It's been running for over 30 years, offering film clips overnight, from late evening until early the next day, on Friday night into Saturday mornings and Saturday nights into Sunday mornings. It started around 10.30 in the evening or sometimes later and ran into 9am in the morning. You could watch the start of Rage, go to sleep and then catch the end of Rage. That meant that every week on the national broadcaster, there were some 20 hours of music programming. Sure, was all in the middle of the night but that's when the music weirdos were up anyway and it probably gave them more freedom to air just about anything. Rage started on the 17th of April 1987 but spent much of those first few years finding the format that would make it loved by Australians. It was a reaction to two things the arrival of music programming on commercial tv and the ABC's desire for its tv stations to not have to shut down at the end of the day and actually have some sort of programming run all night. This was the 80s, TV stations actually turned off at the end of the day, but the ABC wanted to innovate and go 24 hours a day. An ABC producer, Mark Fitzgerald was tasked to work out how to fill that dead air and the idea he hit on was the idea of music film clips. There was no grand vision of supporting Australian music or anything, it was just filling a hole. Here's a new segment discussing the launch of a 24-hour ABC with Rage front and center. Music television was also a novel, exciting idea in 1987. Australia already had some. MTV Australia also started in 1987 as a late Saturday night show on commercial network Channel 9 hosted by Richard Wilkins. Video hits on Channel 10 launched in February of 1987 Playing a long block of music film clips on Saturday mornings. So, in a way, it was just the ABC jumping on the latest trend. Rage's name was going to be Rage Until You Puke. The phrase came from Triple J presenter Lillian Pascoe, although it was quickly changed to just Rage. The colourful logo apparently comes from the vomit inspired origins of the name. Rage couldn't be like MTV and video hits. MTV had hosts and they could go out and record segments. Rage couldn't afford a host, so they never had a regular host. They don't do story packages, they don't do music news, and they don't go out and film stuff. It was cheap programming, which is probably one of the reasons why it survives, no matter how much the conservative governments cut ABC's funding. It wasn't like the ABC didn't support Australian music with performances and segments. They had Countdown Revolution for that, a show that we will talk about later. Meet your new leaders. My name's Janet. I am Andrew. I am Rusty. Uh, Collectively, apparently, we're known as UMI. And uh, we're programming Rage tonight. So pay attention. But at least Rage's playlist was adventurous and free from commercial concerns. Like the radio station Triple J, who were also on the government-owned ABC, the show didn't need to sell advertising. They didn't even really need ratings it's the great argument for state-funded broadcasters there is a freedom to push the culture forward and to challenge people and when the alternative scene flooded the music scene so too did those bands flood rage i can't remember when i first heard about Rage. it always seemed to be there i probably caught it first in the mornings because in the late 80s they ran the charts on sunday mornings Video hits on the rival Channel 10 also did the same. I remember flicking between the two as a kid, often just to catch the same song again that I liked. It just seemed like another countdown show, but with no guest and weirder graphics. But the older I got, the more I discovered rage on late at night. First on Saturdays because I loved The Late Show and ABC sketch comedy show which will actually come up again in this podcast. I would stay up and watch the Late Show and after it would be Rage, that nice pop music countdown show. So sometimes I'd just leave the TV on and see what was next. Maybe some nice pop music? But no, Rage at Night was something way weirder. I can tell you what it says on the box. Rage on Friday nights was new releases and on Saturday nights it was actually hosted by bands. Let's talk first about Fridays. On Fridays, Rage played all the new music videos of the week, starting with the biggest, most famous bands like Pearl Jam or something, and then counting down from the lesser-known bands. And once they were done with the lesser-known bands, they would scrape the bottom of the barrel for any old tape that came in that week. It's amazing that they would play everything. Like Street Press, they were kind of egalitarian. And like Triple J, it was a national broadcaster. They could do what they like. And because they had so much time to fill, Who were they to say no to anything? You'd start with the flavor of the day, some major label grunge or something, and then lots of local indie acts. And by the time you passed midnight, you were down to some very odd local experimental stuff. Comedian John Safran played a prank on Rage once. He put a fisheye camera on a dog and let it run around a beach. He put the footage to some basic programmed dance music, and Rage aired it but it wasn't much of a prank because of course they aired it. Even I knew they would air it. Even if the Rage people knew it was a prank, they would air it. They had space to fill. Who are they to say no? I've often sat up late watching Rage and thought to myself, I know this video clip is trying to pass itself off as Artie, but a five-year-old kid could have shot it. The camera goes here, the camera goes there, the lighting's all wrong, there's no real story, In fact, forget the five-year-old kid. I reckon a dog could get a video on Rage. After that week's new stuff came the best of the most recent stuff. Now, it's important to note at this point, because it was late, Rage could play anything. In fact, at one point, Rage started to air a parental advisory at the start, and instead of filtering kids away, it promised them a forbidden world. Adult things were a given. Coarse language came with the territories, but sometimes you would get the guy telling you there's nudity. But really at the end of the day, it was all quite tame and it was the music and the songs that were most explicit with some exceptions. Many years later, I worked at Channel V and some of the parental advisory laws changed and we had to create a new promo for the channel. And it was decided to just make an advisory that said everything so we were covered. Just say it has coarse language, drug use, violence, nudity, the lot, and then they could reuse it forever. In that meeting, I thought to myself, oh no, some poor kid is going to expect something that never comes. But I digress. Here is that parental advisory from Rage in the 90s. Tonight's Rage is rated M for mature audiences and contains adult themes, coarse language and nudity. But maybe I should have been filtered out because on the other hand, some of those film clips scared the shit out of me. In fact, my abiding memory of rage as a young kid is just wide-eyed terror mixed with awe. I mean, I was like 12 and I was watching film clips for The Birthday Party's Nick the Stripper or Beast of Bourbon's Chase the Dragon or Henry Rowland's Liar. You have to remember, this was late night stuff. You stayed up and you watched it in the dark. Even clips like I's Berlin Chair were strange and unsettling and that's mainly one bloke dancing in a room. The opening titles helped to set the mood. The titles they used on day one are the titles they still use to this day. They cost $800 to produce in 1987, and it's one of the very few graphic elements on the show. It's a bizarre psychedelic burst that features some screaming of the word rage and Iggy Pop performing Real Wild Child, which was a new song at the time. It was released in 1986, a year before the show launched. It's a cover of a song by Johnny O'Keefe the Australian singer who had a hit with it in 1958, one of the great early rock and roll songs, and one of the first great Australian songs. So the theme to Rage is weird, countercultural, punk, and Australian, which fits with Rage. And it also scared the shit out of me. Go and watch the Rage titles on YouTube on its own, or show it to someone who has never seen it. It's weird, right? Apparently, there is always pressure on the show to refresh and update its look but the titles are so iconic. In 1988, they actually ran a poll to see if their audience wanted it to change, and they voted fuck no. It wasn't just the weird clips, it was also the amazing songs. The longer you dig in, sometimes they would play some obscure gem from music history. Rage is where I first heard songs like Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division or I'm Stranded by The Saints. And that music education would also be at the heart of what Rage did on a Saturday night. What Rage will be remembered for by me and almost everyone is Saturday nights. That's when a band would take over and guest host for a whole night. I know I said that Rage didn't have regular hosts, but instead they had artists come in and take over a whole night from Saturday into Sunday morning. From huge overseas superstars to local bands, they would choose 60 songs to play and talk about 14 of them. The show would last 6 hours. Rage on a Saturday night is about as good as music television gets, if you are a music nerd. It was spending time with an artist and talking to them about music, except you never talked. It was hours of listening to artists talk about art, their inspiration, their collaborations, their motivations. It's like the wonderful BBC radio show Desert Island Discs, but more of it, Australian, kind of alternative, and you can see their faces. It usually ended with a full playback of that artist's film clips as well. And often the artists would talk about their own work. There's only two real elements to rage on Saturday nights. There's the Red Book. Never seen, it's the big list of film clips in the ABC library that bands could pick from. And the ABC library has everything, being the national broadcaster this includes obscure stuff and live stuff if it existed they could get it the second element was the sofa bands would flop around that sofa and for some reason it was filmed in blue and white but otherwise that was the entire show there was no interview no performance no plugging of new product a band could just be the music fans they almost always were I'm sure if you asked any band in Australia what their ambitions were, I bet you hosting Rage would be in the top three. If the ABC wanted to take the audio of these old episodes and put them out as podcasts, that would be great. Hi, I'm Kelly, I'm from Screen Feeder and tonight we're programming Rage! (laughs) Before the internet you had no idea who might be hosting. You would hope that it was a band that you love and maybe one that toured recently and they might have stopped by on Rage. Episodes featuring big day out bands would last Rage until March. And if it was a band you loved, you really struck gold. Lucky for me as well, Rage's programmers were excellent. I saw dozens of my favourite artists sitting on that Rage sofa talking about music. That in turn turned me onto dozens of new bands and a deep dive into music history. I'm sure every Australian music fan around my age has episodes and moments they hold dear, and there's no way for me to list all the life-changing moments for me. But here's some anyway. What I remember best is when someone chose something very left field. I love that Tim Rogers chose Lauren Hill, an R&B artist who's so unlike Tim's work. Or the hard-rocking Faith No More choosing Pulp's Babies, a sweet bit of Brit pop or the quite straight rock Everclear choosing indie legends they might be Giants or Travis talking passionately about their fandom of teenage fan club Custard choosing punk rock girl by the dead milkman a song I never heard before but soon became one of my favorites and the bloodhound gang quite a shit band playing me the pixies for the first time every Australian artist chose the saints everyone chose the stone roses Everyone chose the Velvet Underground because everyone loves the Velvet Underground, but they didn't make film clips, but there was a live clip, so it was a weird mullet-headed Lou Reed from 1993 instead of cool 60s New Yorkers, and that clip was on every week. Some artists screwed around with the format. Tism, the incredible prank punk band from Melbourne, chose television themes and other weird things. Some artists, like Ben Folds, chose good film clips over good songs. Yeah, well, uh, you know, why did we become rock stars? Well, uh, you know, when we were younger, uh, there was uh, all these, you know, folks that we knew saying, uh, come on, get out, see the world, take some drugs, meet some girls, do the rock and roll thing, but no, that, you know, didn't do anything for us. Satisfaction by the Stones, no, didn't move me. My generation, the who, no, no. We want the world and we want it now. No, we didn't really agree with that. Uh, none of those things really uh, had any bearing on us. There was one singular moment, I think, uh, that was the thing which created Tism, and uh, here it is, the Four Corners theme. There was a simple thing I learned about inspiration from watching Rage. I remember loving episodes hosted by Everclear or the Presidents of the United States or the Bloodhound Gang because they chose songs that I liked or songs that sounded like I would like them. They seemed like me. But then other artists like Faith No More and Devo and Paul Kelly chose songs that were strange to me, more challenging and weird. And I learned that real artists, they go deep to find inspiration. It makes for better art and it's part of the artistic process. I'm not sure I ever hated any episodes. Some artists worked in genres I didn't care about. There were certainly a lot of artists who sat on that sofa that I'd never heard of in my teenage years. I'd still give them a few songs to prove themselves though, until I had to sleep. For the Australian bands in the 90s, especially on the alternative side, rage meant a lot of good things. Firstly, it was a place to get your film clip played. No matter how small or up and coming, there was an outlet and a big national one watched by hardcore music fans. And as the decade rolled on, Rage was the only place you could see certain clips because they were too weird, too offensive or just too obscure. The bands at the start of the 90s like Ratcat, Hummingbirds and Clouds had to make shiny film clips to try and get on commercial countdown shows like video hits. By the mid 90s, Regurgitator, Tism and Custard could be as weird as they wanted in their clips and it didn't matter and they could still be huge. They could even put out singles that had dreaded coarse language. Some of the commercial shows like Video Hits and Video Smash Hits which started in 1990 only went alternative because they had to, because the music charted. And yes, there was a show called Video Hits and a rival show called Video Smash Hits at one point. In fact, Video Hits was sponsored by Pepsi and Video Smash Hits was sponsored by Coke, so it's just the cola wars played out on Australian music television. They really must have hated each other. Video Smash Hits actually put out a couple of alternative compilations with bands like UMI, Clouds, and The Welcome Mat on them. But it seemed like a branded cash in. No one who worked at Video Smash Hits had ever heard of The Welcome Mat. Hi, I'm Arma. And I'm Simon. And I'm Andrew. We're all collectively called Ratcat. And we're programming Rage tonight for the next four hours. So. Four. Keep your keep your eyelids open. Don't fall asleep. Get all the food and drink you need out now, so you don't have to move. It was Rage that had everything. So much so that there are dozens upon dozens of Australian music film clips up on YouTube, and they are taken from Rage with Rage titles still on screen. It's the only place that played them. You can track some trends in film clips at this time. The early 90s moved away from some of the hard-ons clips where they're just performing to shinier and more manicured performance clips like Ratcat's That Ain't Bad or Cloud's Hieronymous. You wanted to see the guitars and the band. Then guitars became ever-present and it didn't have to be the focus. Bands and their directors got more inventive. They also didn't need to get expensive lights to sell beautiful faces. It's okay, Rage will play it no matter what. You and My's Berlin Chair is a weird one-shot clip where the band appears in the final seconds. Custard's Pack Your Suitcases is in black and white and very quirky. Then by the time you passed the mid-90s, you got purely art clips like Tism's Greg the Stop Sign or the animated clips by Regurgitator. And the budgets got bigger as the bands and the scene got bigger. Plus there was the possibility of getting played in the US or the UK, especially when these bands started to sign overseas deals. And by the 90s rage was joined by channel v and recovery and then you had several places to get your clip seen but we are skipping ahead there's plenty of time to get into all that the other way rage benefited local bands was having several of them host the show over the years the first guest in 1990 was andrew denton who is a comedian and best known as an interviewer these days he was soon followed by hundreds of musicians and although they had some huge names they didn't need to just have them to get ratings, so they had Elvis Costello, Metallica and Kylie Minogue who all hosted Rage in the 90s, but so did the Hard Ons, the Hummingbirds and Clouds. Pretty much all the big acts of the Australian alternative era got a go at some point, and I love so many of these artists and it was so exciting for me to see UMI host or Custard host or Jebediah host and so many others. It's not only that they gave them a platform, it gave them 6 hours of space for these artists to show us who they are. In the mid 90s, Rage and Triple J would really come together. Triple J would simulcast Rage and you'd tune into Triple J late at night and you caught Rage specials. Rage would also take the hottest 100 and play all the songs with film clips and do the big video party of that countdown. So it tapped into the same audience as Triple J in many ways. But the Rage universe and the Triple J universe was different. Rage wasn't youth television. And Rage would deep dive into older music a lot. They would do specials on grunge and brick pop and metal and it would go quite deep. Triple J was new and fast and moved on quick. Hello, I'm Melissa. I'm Angel. And I'm Veronica. And? We're Silver Chair. And you're watching your television. It's got Rage on. Yeah. But you can change a channel that wouldn't be a good idea because there's some good songs on. In the last decade or so, any music study will tell you that the number one place for music discovery is YouTube. People might listen to music more on streaming services or radio, but YouTube is their way in to a new artist. Part of that is because it's free, but I would argue part of it is because it's visual, because film clips are always the best way to discover new music and a new artist. Because you got to see them, and they presented more information about what they were. The clothes they wore, the guitars they slung, and the worlds where they lived. So apart from the great Saturday nights that got me closer to some incredible artists, I think I discovered more music on Rage than anything else. Especially the old stuff. Especially the influential stuff. Sonic Youth, Pavement, Pixies, The Hummingbirds, Go-Betweens, and more. A thorough retelling of music history told by great rage programmers and the best musicians in the world. Every damn weekend for over 30 years on the national broadcaster, completely free with no ads. My love of rage started on Sunday mornings when I started to switch from video hits over to rage more and more. As the 90s rolled on and I stayed up later, I watched more. The game was always... Let's just see what the next clip is before you go to bed. Just one more. I'll just see what the next one is. After the 90s, rage stayed pretty much the same. As I grew up and moved out, rage still stayed in my life. Coming home from a gig, you would always check what was on rage before you went to bed. And I would play the same game. Just see what the next clip is. Just one more. And later again, when I lived overseas, I'd come home from a lovely night. And many times wished that there was rage waiting for me. The pay TV music television channels just weren't the same, and I'd watched them anyway for a bit because I learnt that habit from years of watching Rage. Of course, like everything else, the internet came along and changed everything. Now Rage publishes what's on before they play it, and film clips are all over YouTube. But still, Rage survives. It has lasted so long because it's cheap and it escapes every ABC budget cut. It is now the longest running music video show still in existence on the planet. And when it gets to 45 years, 10 years away at the time of this writing, it will overtake the UK's Top of the Pops as the longest-running music show of all time. And there's no reason to believe it won't happen. One, two, one, two, three, four. You're Tim Rogers, you're in UMI, and I'm sitting back here watching Rage. This episode, I have to thank Narelle G, who was the producer of Rage from 1995 to 2008. She is the keeper of the flame. There's a book on Rage written by G. Released in 2010 and called Real Wild Child, the book tells a bit about how Rage works and is full of fun rock star anecdotes. I like how she really puts you in the room and on the sofa with her writing. It's a really good page turner. There's also a healthy selection of stories about Australian artists like Tim Rogers, Tex Perkins, The Living End, Ben Lee and much more. She followed it up with an actual academic thesis on Rage. It's written academically, but it makes a lot of fascinating points, some of which I've stolen. I'll supply a link on the site. The ABC are not shy about celebrating Rage, despite never giving it massive funding. There's been 10 anniversary specials, 20th anniversary specials, and there was a Rage art display held in 2012 as part of the Vivid Festival. They also produced a one hour look back in 2017 to celebrate 30 years. It had interviews and showed clips from over the years, but is sadly not available to watch anywhere. There's been at least two Rage fan sites, Rageaholic and Rage Again. Rage Again generates YouTube playlists from show notes so you can watch it all, but without the hosting bits. The hosting bits are my favorite bits, and some of the clips are on YouTube, but nowhere near enough. Again, links to both in the show notes. There have been three Rage compilations. The latest celebrated 30 years of Rage. I have no idea what this compilation is supposed to be or supposed to do. It claims to celebrate rage in some way. But it's just songs that had good film clips from the last 30 years. It's so utterly random. It features Kate Sobrano, The Clouds, Missy Elliott, Tism, Britney Spears, MGMT, Madison Avenue and other just random tracks from all genres and styles smooshed together. No one wants to listen to this and the thing that connects them, good film clips, is utterly lost on CD. But way better are the other two Rage compilations. The other two compile tracks that were the most chosen by guest programmers. These are the songs that inspired the greatest musicians of their day that also toured Australia at least once. Volume 1 was released in 1998 and I wore out my copy. A sequel was released in 1999. Each track is not just a classic. They are usually important to the story of music. Grandmaster Flash, The Specials, Husker du, It was a great compilation for a young kid just taking those steps to learn about music history. For the purposes of our podcast, they don't have many Australian tracks. I wish there was an Australian tracks compilation. In fact, I wish there were some real stats here. The playlists are out there. There's all these Hottest 100 statistics sites. I wish someone would make a Rage one so you can see the most chosen song from the 90s or the most chosen song from Australia and do all sorts of sorting. Someone get onto that. But across those two compilations, there are four Australian 90s tracks, and it's worth noting what they are. They are UMI's Berlin Chair, Regurgitator's Kung Fu Sing, Dirty Three's Everything's Fucked, and Chase the Dragon, the film clip that scared the shit out of me when I was 12. This episode is just half the story. There's still a lot more to say about music television with Recovery, Channel V, and much more. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Just Ace podcast. As usual, this is the bit where I do the housekeeping, and I talk about ways that you can support this podcast. Any bit of help goes to pay for the hosting and the programs and all the stuff that puts this podcast together. Most importantly, it keeps it ad-free. There's a Patreon. Of course there is. It's a very affordable $3 a month, and it's just a little more than an album cost in the 90s every year you get an ebook of all the episodes and scripts, and a thank you in that book as well. Or you can buy me a coffee. It's a service where you can give me a tip. I'm getting lots of coffees, so thank you. Some people even bought me five coffees. I'm flattered, and I'm caffeinated. The third way is to buy a poster. Check out the poster on the website. It features 160-odd people from Australian music in the 90s, and I drew it myself. Links to all that stuff in the description. There's no-cost ways to support me too. Leaving the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts is probably the best way. And it's great for discovery. Five stars will do. Leave me a review if you like as well. The other no-cost way is to tell a friend. Episodes 1 and 2 are still in the top episodes every week, so I know people are still discovering it and starting from the beginning. Otherwise, follow JustAce on social media. I'm posting lots of extra photos and show notes and stuff about what I'm working on for Season 2. And remember the website for playlists, show notes and much more. The handle is JustAce90s, which is JustAce90s and the website is JustAce90s.com. That's it. Next week, more music and the story of the very first alternative band I ever heard, whatever the hell that means. Start again.